Welcome to the 80,000 Hours Podcast. This interview with David Spiegelhalter is a bit unusual in that it was actually recorded two years ago. We were considering starting a podcast back then, and I recorded this trial episode with my colleague, Jess Whittlestone, but ultimately we didn't have the time to go ahead with the project. But I thought, why not dig it up and release it now? David Spiegelhalter is a statistician at the University of Cambridge and something of an academic celebrity in the UK. Part of his role is to improve the public understanding of risk, especially everyday risks we face, like getting cancer or dying in a car crash. As a result, he's regularly in the media, explaining the numbers in the news, trying to assist both ordinary people and politicians to focus on the most important risks that confront us and avoid being distracted by flashy risks that perhaps don't actually have that much impact. To help make sense of the uncertainties we face in life, he's had to invent concepts like the micro-life or a 30-minute change in life expectancy. We gave him a call because we wanted to learn whether he thought a lifetime of work had actually made that much difference to the world. Enjoy. Here at the Centre for Effective Altruism, we're interested in finding ways to compare what it means to do good and to figure out which ways of doing good do the most good. So we ask questions like, which charity should you donate to if you want to help as many people as possible? What careers should you follow if you want to improve the world? And which cause areas have the largest impact? These are the sorts of questions that we think it's really important to get clear so you know how you can make a real difference. To help us answer some of these questions, we're joined by Professor David Spiegelhalter, the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge University. Professor Spiegelhalter spent much of his life trying to improve public understanding of statistics, science and risk in ordinary life. He regularly appears in the UK media and writes on his blog, Understanding Uncertainty. It's great to have you with us today, David. Hi. So we've got so many things we'd like to talk about. Uh, we'll see how far we get. But first, uh, tell us a bit about your, uh, who you are and your position. Yeah, yeah, I've got a strange job, really. I'm in the maths department at Cambridge, and I teach statistics to the undergraduates, but I'm actually funded by a hedge fund, Winton Capital Management, and have endowed my chair in order to improve the public understanding of statistics and risk. And so um, what I have done since I've had that job for the last eight years is I suppose to try to join the general community of people who are trying to improve the way numbers in particular are discussed in society. So what kinds of questions do you research and what outreach do you do to help the public understand numbers and uncertainty better? Well, I get asked to do a huge amount of stuff. I suppose helping in various agencies, communicating risk, um, you know, about sort of cancer risk, about the risk of, of, of screening, for example, risks and benefits of screening. I, 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 my background is in medical statistics, so that's what I get to do quite a lot. But I've done uh, TV programs about climate change. I've done uh, you know, radio stuff about um, you know all sorts of threats to society, from Fukushima to uh, and, and so on. Um, everything to do with um, trying to get a handle on you know what are the important threats to to us individually, and uh, and what we might how we might be able to make comparisons bet between those. So um, I, I'm very interested in rather than sort of the great global existential risks, I'm more interested in the things that affect us all individually about how we eat, our exercise, um, transport, and so on. So yeah, one of the things that I find really interesting in this area is that there's a lot of evidence that people tend to be very poor at estimating lots of different probabilities and so end up overestimating the scale of some problems or risks that they face and underestimating others. Um, from your experience, what kinds of problems do you think that people tend to be most prone to overestimate or underestimate and get wrong in very harmful ways? Well, there's been a lot of research on this by psychologists, as you know, and, um, and of course, when we talk about people, I 
always include myself in this. You know, I'm as subject to the whims of my emotional gut reactions as much as anybody else. I'm not making any claim about some superior knowledge and rationality compared with everybody else because we just know that the way we respond to things are, you know, very to simplify a lot. You know, we can think in two different ways. We can respond with our guts or we can try to engage our brain and think slowly about stuff. And, um, and this is so relevant when it comes to risk, um, particularly this idea that what, what, what's available to us, this availability heuristic is very strong, that what we hear in the news, we, you know, we hear about Ebola, we hear about terrorism, we hear about you know, the latest you know, threat that, might, that uh, might be in what we eat and the way we travel. And we get very concerned about this, whether it's a plane crash or whatever, and uh, because that's what's in the news, that's what is available to us, that's what's, what's so prominent. But of course, so many of these risks are actually very small indeed. This is not a threat to us particularly at all. Um, and the things that are much more familiar and that we don't hear much of, you know, for example, just you know, heart disease, cancer, all those sort of stuff that we have, get a large amount of that is because of the way we live, our lack of exercise, our crummy diet and so on, of course, is people get a bit bored with that because, and, uh, and don't get so concerned about it. Do you feel you've had any success improving public understanding of risks and getting people to focus on the stuff that really matters? Oh, I don't know. It's very difficult to measure. I mean, I, it'd be great to think so. Um, I've been involved in some good projects that I've been very proud of. For example, the redesign of the cancer screening leaflets in the UK, which uh, present the benefits and risks of cancer screening in a, in a very balanced way. They, they are hugely innovative, innovative is in that they don't actually recommend people go for screening. They, they just say, well, these are the possible benefits. These are the possible harms. Make up your own mind. And uh, I... I believe that's the right way to go about communicating risk is not to say oh you've got to watch out you've got to watch out this is terrible say well if you do this this might happen or it might not happen and weigh it up and and actually you know give people credit for some intelligence which i think people basically are I don't think people are so stupid and what i am proud of is being part of a, a general community that's very strong in britain to do with public engagement in science and um, which is, I'm just a small part of that because it's, it covers the material on the radio, stuff on television, stuff in, in um, some newspapers and in various agencies, for example, the Statistics Authority, which is just trying to take a much more critical attitude to the way that numbers and evidence are used in society. And I think it's, it works in, in Britain. We're rather good compared with most people about you know, I don't know. We don't have these massive fears of, of vaccinations, of nuclear power, of, of, of even GMOs, and and so I, I I think this is a sign that we in this country have developed quite a good um, uh, public engagement with science community. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about um, what potential you think there is for young people who want to have an impact with their career going into a career path similar to your own and trying to get into public outreach and engagement to um, to have a broader impact rather than necessarily just doing research in academia. So uh, how hard do you think it is to do this kind of thing? And is it, it sounds like this is definitely something you wish more academics did work on. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I really come to it quite late as a, as a real part of my career, as I said, again, because a philanthropist um, in a hedge fund, you know, provided the funding for me to be able to do this full time. But I was doing some before as part of my job. And I increasingly feel that it's uh, actually a duty of academics, who after all are publicly funded, for a certain proportion of them to really spend some time on public engagement. It doesn't suit everybody. It's not for everyone at all, although I think everybody should have a website explaining what they do. 
and um, and that this should be uh, is also supported and there should be incentives within the career structure for academics to do this and I'm quite pleased that in Cambridge for example when we're looking at promotion of people their public engagement is taken very seriously indeed and it's something I, I, I strongly support so it's not for everybody but I think it is a very important thing for academics to do um, as they're doing their work almost in whatever area it has a relevance to society and it can um, potentially improve society and they should be working on it. I, I personally think that statistics is a particularly important area for improvement of society. Um, I feel this very strongly and many statisticians do. Um, in terms of public engagement, the Royal Statistical Society has now got an initiative of we're training up statistics ambassadors, young statisticians who are who want to do this, who really want to get out there and communicate the importance of their work and try to improve the way things are done with, with numbers and evidence. Uh, I think this is so exciting, such fun. So a lot of young people we meet are thinking of going into academia. Do you feel like that's a, a good place to be to have a big impact in the world? Of course, there, there are also some drawbacks that you might uh, be aware of from your experience of being in academia. Yes, yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, to recommend, yes, you really should go into academia. Um, you know, it doesn't suit everybody. And, and frankly, compared with when I started, it's quite, it's very, it seems very tough now. Uh, so with most careers, there seem to be a lot more pressures on than there used to be. So it's quite, it can be quite a tough call, I think. But there is potential to do a lot of good stuff. And, you know, people work, the people I work with and know in other areas, whether they're working in natural, natural, um, you know, natural threats, natural disasters, whether they're working in botany, whether they work in any area, um, plant sciences, whatever, are, are really dedicated to trying to improve the lot of the world. And uh, I'm, I'm so impressed by their dedication. But it is a tough job. And you don't necessarily see in this sort of push to got to publish the work you've got to do all this got to go through all this um all this business in order to build one's career it doesn't necessarily appear at first that you're actually doing great good <laughs> in what you do very little of it you can see a direct impact however as i know that in um you know what's very good about it is that it it, it is it's building a lot of transferable skills that you can use and um, i find that in my statistical skills for example are in a massive demand um, by all sorts of agencies um I could point in particular to the importance of the Millennium Development Goals and the, and the Sustainable Development Goals, which are which are um, you know, which are replacing them. In which the sort of monitoring of the um, state of, of, of the welfare in different countries around the world has become absolutely vital. And just being able to measure things and know what's going on and uh, to develop good ways to do surveys to actually you know, look at what works and how how you can. Um, improve these measures is has become enormously vital enormously important so i, I think um well again i'm coming back to the fact that i think statistics is a particularly valuable area to go into yeah absolutely and just a little bit more broadly you know the key idea behind effector altruism is that we want to try and figure out which altruistic activities which charities which career paths which causes do the most good and we think that being able to measure things or at least trying to measure things is incredibly valuable in making progress on those questions but obviously these are many of these questions are incredibly difficult to answer so a common criticism that we often get is people saying something like oh it's impossible to figure out which charities or careers do the most good so you're wasting your tough trying and you should just go with your gut or you know help personal yeah. causes 
Um, what do you think of this kind of objection? And do you think that there's anything to it? Um, you know, concern about there being too much uncertainty? Um, you know, we often respond by saying that, you know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and estimation is clearly the best we have. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this challenge and, and I, how to I, respond to it? I mean, this is not a, a, a comment that's um, just restricted to, what, to the area that you're talking about. It happens all the time. It used to happen in healthcare. People used to say, oh, you can't put a value on a human life. Um, we've just got to do all we can to do good, and we have to just go with our guts, essentially. Now, this, that view now, certainly in the UK, has been completely discredited. You can put a value on a human life. <laughs> we do all the time. No, not sure everyone would agree, but... Uh... Not sure everyone you can agree. And, of course... But you but, have to. But NICE, for example, has been doing this for over a decade now. So putting a value on the marginal benefit of a particular healthcare intervention and uh, assessing what should be supported under the National Health Service according to these formal criteria. Now, we know this is not perfect. We know this does not measure everything, but it's explicit, it's transparent, and they've done their best, and it's, I think it's been a massive success and a huge example to other countries as to how you can go about it. Now, we know it's, an, it's never perfect, it's never perfect. But, of course, people have then tried to take that approach, which I think has been extremely beneficial in healthcare, and move it into other areas. Now, how can you do it? So people are trying to do it with the environment. You know, how can we measure the value of a tree? Well, people are trying to measure the value of a tree. And I don't know what the value of a tree is worth. It's quite a lot. But, you know, working out all these different, trying to measure the benefit of a, a healthy, sustainable environment, etc. What's the value of a species? What's the value of this? I mean, it seems it's too easy to sit back and say, oh, you can't do it, you can't measure that. Well, no, you can have a good go. You can have a good go. So, as you say, it's always a balance between trying your best, realizing you're never going to be able to do it, but not to be put off having a good go. So it, it, it's like a lot of things we do in statistics, trying to measure things, trying to model things, that we always know what we do is inadequate, but that doesn't mean you can't do useful things. Can you tell us a bit more about NICE and how they prioritise health treatments within the United Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, that's something I've worked on as a medical statistician. I've been a huge supporter of NICE. And essentially, um, what, they, what they do is when they decide whether to decide whether to have a new vaccine or whether to decide to have a new um, recommend uh, to, for drugs to be paid for under the NHS, for example, they will look at what is the expected benefit of that, uh, of that intervention and what's the expected cost. And then they look at how much it's going to cost to um, provide an extra, what they call a quality, a quality adjusted life year. So one year of life that's discounted. If it's poor quality, you will, you will, you will, you will discount it. It won't be worth a whole year. And then essentially they can make the comparison and they look, if something comes in at less than £20,000 a quality, it just almost is paid for, you know, just, yep, fine, we'll pay for it under the NHS. If it's uh, more than about 30000 then they really try to say, well, we don't want to pay for this, and try to go back to the drug company to renegotiate a price, for example. Between 20000 and 30000 well, you know, that's, that's more in the grey zone. So, and this has been enormously beneficial, partly in order to go back to drug companies and get them to reduce their prices, but... Um, and also to see that some interventions, for example, cancer screening, come in extremely cheap. They're just worth doing. It also means you have to be explicit, for example, on how much you value the future rather than the present, because they put in a discount rate, currently 3.5%. And now that means that you know a year of life in 25 years' time, for example, is only worth about half what a 
year of life now is worth, um, and that's taken into account. Um, now, that, that of course, is, is controversial, and if we were talking about big policy decisions, for example, about climate change, that's far too big a discount rate. We wouldn't care less about the world in 100 years' time if we use that discount rate. So in different areas, you might be wanting to use a different dis discount rate. But these are taking economic ideas and moving them into very human decisions, and I think they are enormously helpful and illuminating. But they're never perfect. Yeah, I've actually written an article with uh, Professor Toby Ord about why we shouldn't discount health, even though we should discount financial returns, about why, why it's appropriate in one case and not in the other. So we'll put up a link to that uh, on the website. Uh, so a lot of people who are planning out their careers, they feel just overwhelmed by uncertainty. They don't know how much they're going to earn in one career or what's the chances of getting into academia or being elected to parliament. Uh, how do you think people ought to make decisions uh, when they're just surrounded by so much uncertainty? Well, I mean, you could say that we're always surrounded by this. Again, this is common to everything we do. We, we never know what's going to happen in the future, which is great. People don't, don't want to know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> People don't even know what, they want, what they're going to get for Christmas, let alone what's going to happen for the rest of their lives. And so um, th this is just a common problem. And we need to distinguish you know, what we might call risk and uncertainty. Risk is when you know, it's a very well-defined problem short-term issues and buying lottery tickets when we know what the chances are and then we can sort of take a rational approach when we're dealing with deeper uncertainty when we really are not even sure what the options are or what might how our lives might develop then um, it's very difficult to take a completely formal approach and so um, I wouldn't try to say oh we should be able to do all this mathematically at all however the basics of qualitative ideas of thinking through a rational decision are still very valuable because you think of, you know, what are the options available, what are the possibilities, and, uh, you know, what are the possible consequences of what I might do. Now, that's always inadequate. You're never going to be able to think of everything. Um, however, by thinking through that, some things might become immediately apparent, some immediate rankings of what is preferable and not preferable might become apparent. Um, and otherwise, um, you can, will might need to fall back, I think, on, on you know, broader strategies for making decisions in the face of what we call deeper uncertainty. Now, this is a deeply contested area. Um, when governments make policies, uh, very often they're in these situations where they, they can't even think of all the things that might happen. And so they're, they're um, in this situation of deeper uncertainty. And uh, people have suggested various ways to go about it. The first thing is to not to think that you can optimize. You can't be perfect. You, you cannot be perfect. So the sort of suggestions that people make in terms of general decision making in these contexts are to do with flexibility and resilience. That you want to be, you want you don't want to commit yourself to something you're not going to be able to change because you can't predict everything that's going to happen. So you want to build in flexibility and adaptivity to your decision making. And that's the same in any business, any government, any any project at all. And the other thing is to build in resilience in which you uh, are you know, essentially can cope with the unexpected and things. And that means both, um, you know, the possibility of really good things happening as well as the possibility of really bad things happening. That you are making sure that you haven't put all your eggs in one basket, essentially. So you, if something goes wrong, you haven't completely gone up a total blind alley that you can't renegotiate, which means operating from a basis, the most robust basis as possible. So it means not trying to optimize to a single path, but building in robustness, which means, um, I think, you know, in, in terms of career, of course, building in transferable skills that you're going to be able to use in a variety of circumstances. So I think these are standard tactics to responding to deeper uncertainty. 
um, which can be used in, a, in any situation. Yeah, that's definitely something that the organisation 80,000 Hours who advise people on you know, how to have a big impact with their careers really focus on is, especially early in your career, like keep your options open, choose things that are robust under, you know, lots of different possible things happening. One other question that we find we come up against a fair amount in thinking about careers and charities and all kinds of things is, you know, how do you go about choosing between a small chance of some really huge outcome, like, you know, saving the world from a pandemic that kills millions, um, against some high probability of a very moderate or a more moderate outcome, so, you know, helping yeah. people in your local community. Um, this seems like a very difficult thing to deal with. Do you have any thoughts on how people can go about making these kinds of decisions? Yeah, very difficult. But again, these are common decisions in our, always in our lives. Do we go for the mm-hmm. sort of high-risk option or the, or the safer or the safer option? Um, I, I personally think that actually, you know, a mixed strategy is, is something that businesses, I think, would recommend, although that's not what I do. I'm not involved in, um, in any investment decisions, but often, you know, I think people would take a, an idea of a portfolio of, 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 of risk-taking, because these are all risks. You know, you can't guarantee you anything you're going to do. Um, these are all risks. And um, so that you might, you know, have a certain amount invested in rather safe things, with a safe return, you're pretty sure that what you're going to do is going to have a reasonable return. Um, that you really can predict the consequences of what, or what you're using your career or your money for, what you're giving for. Uh, on the other hand, on more speculative, where you, you may be supporting something that actually might not come to, know, come to, come to anything, either because the solution it's promising um, won't work or the threat won't arise in the first place. So um, I, I, I think actually a mixed strategy in these circumstances. Again, you know, I wouldn't want to just put all the eggs in one basket. It's just, I think, um, that wouldn't be appropriate. I also personally feel that, um, this is completely my personal reaction about giving, is that um, I, I quite like a mixed strategy in which some things are, are you know, the, the bigger, you might slightly anonymous charities, where you, you're giving money so to a large organisation that's doing something which um, is contributing in a part of probably fairly predictable way to, to, to um, improving things for people versus you know the more personal ones where you do have the personal contact um, and you might get a slightly more sort of emotional feedback from that partly because that might encourage you to perhaps take on a more you know, good feedback from your altruism might encourage you to take on a bigger you know, a bigger commitment in the future so there are various ways of thinking about how to quantify the risks or possible gains associated with an activity. Can you explain what a micromort or a micro-life is? Oh, yeah, yeah. These are units that, well, I, we invented the micro-life, someone else invented the micromort. It's, it's just a way of trying to get a common scale for, in this in particular case, a micromort is acute risks, the things that might kill you on the spot, but otherwise you're healthy. And it's a one in a million chance of dying because of a, an action you might take, so, you know, Skydiving or something is approximately seven, ten micromorts, um, and uh, micro life, which is something to do with chronic risks, which is um, the risk of um, I think the stuff I'm quite interested in, which is uh, bad lifestyle, you know, lack of exercise or smoking or drinking or um, you know, bad diet, or whatever, uh, which isn't going to kill you on the spot, um, but will uh, sure, is likely to shorten your life. Definitely not definitely at all. You know. Maybe not, but probably will. And uh, so it's a reduction of half an hour in your life expectancy. And I find these quite useful because it enables you to compare all these different 
things like diet and smoking and uh, exercise and things and, and makes me for example think you know obviously smoking is where you get the biggest return or the biggest you know um, in terms of not smoking you get the huge biggest return um, uh, you know, drinking at low doses well actually it doesn't make much difference and I, you know it's not a huge a huge concern unless you're really swinging it down um, but exercise again I think is, is extremely important and, and diet's important and and it just gives you a feeling of what's you know where the um, you know where the priorities are, which of course it's all a bit obvious. They're the priorities that people do in public health, but it makes you slightly unconcerned about um, other things that people might be really concerned about. So these these concepts were invented to help people get a better understanding and make better decisions. Yeah. Do you think that we could invent uh, new concepts to help uh, people think about how they can do more good in the world? Yeah, um, uh, you know, a micro outro or something. Well, you know, what, <laughs> uh, it's difficult. I mean, the quality is a stat is a good one. If you're really, if your if your area of cause is, is to do with saving lives or improving health, you know, lethal risk to people, then quality is a, is a good one. I and mean, it's already established. You can look at how many lives you're going to save, how many years of life are you going to gain for um, from your intervention, and um, and we know that. You know, if you're giving money for to some particular charities that will be, you know, which I know that you, you promote, you know, they're extremely cost-effective in that way. It's more difficult if you have a broader idea, for example, of, of supporting education, of, of preserving the environment, the natural environment, and so on. Quite how to put uh, a number on that uh, within a within a particular area of cause. The cause, then you might be able to do it, but provide, having metrics that cut, go right across court, different areas of cause is, is, is difficult. And I know that you know people you know, criticise the kind of um, you know, attempts to do it. I still think it's worth trying to do. I mean, and, and people are struggling to do this within environment, within within the environment, and, and so on. Now, I don't think I've got any great idea, to be honest. Um, to uh, I mean, one possibility, of course, is is looking at general measures of well-being. Mm. Again, people are doing. It's measured by national governments now to try to measure well-being um, in terms of how people feel about uh, about their lives. Um, and uh, so, general well-being indices, which are not just um, you know, health-related or length of life-related, um, I think uh, you know got have got great potential. But it's not going to. It's not. You're not going to be able to get the perfect measure on anything. So people are often asked, you know, how would you rate uh, how good your life is going from uh, one to ten? You know, typically they give answers between six and eight, at least in the UK. That's Maybe right. we could have a micro happy, which would be something as good as moving someone from six to seven or seven to eight on this welfare scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I think that you know those scales. Um, well, actually, I find them very revealing when people do mention them, particularly across cultures, as you said. Mm. Most Everyone says seven, <laughs> maybe because they like well, the number seven. But it also reflects this idea: well, it's not bad. You know, mustn't grumble. Yeah. You know, you know, it could be better, but mustn't grumble. You know, sort of slightly British stoic attitude. Mm. In so um, I think it's almost predictable what people are going to respond. But I find, for example, the age distribution of these responses and how the age distribution varies across cultures extremely interesting. Mm. And um, the idea of um, you know whether one could move. Groups of people uh, on that scale um, would be very important. And when I think of you know, sort of charities, you know, some of the ones I, go, I, I give to, you know, which are not directly, I don't think, going to actually make people live longer. But 
um, you would hope to would improve people's well-being and sense of happiness uh, considerably. Yeah, it is a fascinating uh, area of research. And, and there are significant international differences. So uh, I think in the UK and America and Australia, people do tend to give seven or maybe eight yeah. if they're yeah. feeling particularly yeah. good. Yeah. But in, in South America, people are just, for some reason, more exuberant and uh, tend to often give eights, uh, even, yeah. even when they're relatively poor. Uh, and by contrast, in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Eastern Asia, like Japan and China, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, people yeah. tend to give relatively low scores relative yeah. to how life their well seems to, their life seems to be going from the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, people give different cultures. I think in Africa, they're even lower. People give very... Mm. Yeah, there are some countries that where the average is as low as a four out of ten, yeah. which yeah. Is maybe, maybe half of people are giving less than four, which is uh, yeah. a bit unfortunate. But again, you, I mean, these are... I, I, they're, they're very culturally, um, I think, specific. And mm. so... Um, but I think what one want to see is, is relative changes, relative changes perhaps, you know, compared with the mm. average in that in that community that mm. one would for um that um you know you can't just bet everyone get everyone up to eight or whatever i mean there are different very different cultural attitudes to do with i think that are reflected in those questions yeah so by trying to estimate risks or the size of problems in this quantitative way do you think we risk being biased against approaches that are harder to quantify yeah, it always is a problem that people start believing the the, the model, the measure, which is only an, a very inadequate thing, starts trying starts becoming the thing that you are in fact then trying to um, you know you focus on to the detriment of all others. I mean, and, and there's a real problem with over you know metricizing um, any activity, you know, pretending that you can measure the benefits of everything. And that, academic world of course is a um, real example of that where people start getting obsessed with impact factors and mm. nonsense like that yeah. so um, there's uh, there's a real danger with with um, believing these things too much um, at the same time I think you should have a damn good go at, her, at trying to do it um, you know, just because something is is difficult and cannot be done perfectly it doesn't mean that you can't at least have a have a stab at it because because you may be able to get you know often with these things you might be able to get really clear rankings you know the great precision might not be required in order to determine that actually this is not you know not an effective use of resources compared with with doing something yeah and i think that rather than giving us a perfect answer to all questions using you know models and looking at different factors can, as you say, just help you to identify like clear differences or areas where you need to get more information because you just have no idea how to factor that in or, or something. Yeah. So it can definitely be very useful. Um, finally, just to what extent do you think that the average person can benefit from a better understanding of statistics, learning more statistics, you know, either in their everyday lives or in being more effective as altruists? Um, and to what extent do you think, I guess, relating back to the past question, it could potentially limit us? Yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah, of course I do. Of course I'd say this, wouldn't I? Um, but <laughs> yeah, I do believe that uh, people would benefit from having um, a greater idea of stats and measurement and number and quantity and uh, and the frailties of that as well. Because the point about understanding statistics is both to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. The two are absolutely hand in hand. And what mm. people tend to do at the moment, who are not, you know, I suppose, not confident with, with, with numbers and how they are constructed, because in the end they are, are always constructed, someone has chosen what to measure, and uh, is that they tend to either accept them as if they're God-given truth, and that's, you know, the number, and that's so vital, or, you know, and that, that is it, 
That's what we're looking for. Or reject them out of hand. Oh, you can't put numbers in any, you know, just lies, damn lies, and statistics, and this sort of nonsense. And that sort of, those two extreme views are both equally the otter. But if you've got a slightly more nuanced view, you'll realize that statistics and numbers and measurement are, are an incredibly valuable tool, but they're, they're just a tool, and uh, they, they have their frailties and inadequacies. So you both need to be able to teach and understand the strength and the limitations. And, well, I'm involved in a number of educational projects you know, in which we're trying to do just that. So it's uh, really a matter of trying to uh, assign the appropriate weight to each different kind of evidence or each different piece of evidence that comes your way. I think, I mean, in the end, uh, what statistics is, is to do with is quantitative evidence. That's what, it, that's what, what, what we're talking about. And, and evidence can be good, bad, or, you know, along a whole scale. It's not a true or false um, it's just evidence, and we're trying to weigh up that evidence, um, which we do all the time in our lives. We do this, but you know, our guts tend to be you know, a bit um, fallible when it comes to weighing up evidence. We tend to be you know, too influenced by certain salient things that really attract our attention. And so, actually, standing back and trying to be a bit cooler about weighing up evidence, I think, is a really valuable uh, thing to try to do in all areas of life. It doesn't matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say that you should completely discount that gut feeling, but often just supplement it with some extra no, evidence yeah. or statistics. I gut. My guts are, I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't trust them a bit, but I still, you know, go with them. Yeah. I think that's about all we've got time for now, but thanks so much, David. Um, this has been very informative um, and really interesting. Okay, thanks very much. Right. If you'd like to hear more from Professor Spiegelhalter, then you can find his blog, uh, Understanding Uncertainty Online. And he's also often on uh, the radio in the UK, in particular on More or Less on BBC4. Mm-hmm.